0: My name is John O'Sullivan, I'm the president of the Danube Institute in Budapest, and I'd like to welcome you to our Buddha Hills podcast.
1: Eric Hendricks and I are recording this conversation in one of the historic villas that overlooks the Danube from the Buddha Hills. Our guest today is Professor David Pan, who obtained his doctorate from Columbia University in New York. He now holds a chair in European Languages and Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and is editor of Telos Journal, also in New York. He is the author of two books, Primitive Renaissance, Rethinking German Expressionism, published in 2001, and Sacrifice in the Modern World, Particularity and Generality of Nazi Myth, which appeared in 2012. Today we'll be looking at one of his articles which appeared in Telos, namely Cosmopolitanism Tianxia and Walter Benjamin's The Task of the Translator from 2017. Now the title might sound daunting, but it's full of fascinating ideas on uh, the East and the West, which we look forward to discussing. Professor Pan, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: I was thinking perhaps we could begin, as your article begins, with just a glimpse back to kind of the first circumstances in which the word cosmopolitan was ever used, which according to tradition was with a particular Greek philosopher.
0: Long time ago, Diogenes the Cynic, uh, he he was kind of a crazy guy who just kind of walked around and he, you know, he claimed <coughs> to be a citizen of the world. So that's the meaning of cosmopolitan, right? And so... Uh, as a citizen of the world, he really felt that uh, he didn't really, um, you know, belong or or wasn't tied to any particular locality. Uh, And so, and it was, I guess you could say, uh, in this first instantiation, uh, it was almost a kind of, um, you know, rejection of kind of, uh, you know, locality, I suppose, and that was, that would, maybe you can think about it that way.
1: Yeah, so you use a, a really fascinating phrase. You, um, you say that the, the cynics' uh, rejection of conventions left a kind of empty space between locality and uni- universality, which is one of our themes today. What, what is the universal, and how do you construct it? Is it constructed? And so on and so forth. Um, but I, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the rejection of convention that seems to be essential to this first gesture towards cosmopolitanism
0: um yeah so i mean but as an i, I guess the problem with with Diogenes he, he rejects convention but <coughs> in appealing to this um this universal this cosmopolitan it was a pretty abstract idea and so there was no um there were no alternative sets of conventions there was no there was nothing uh concrete about uh, what this universal would be and i think that's you know i think that's a problem that continues all the way to today, where when you talk about the cosmopolitan, it, it's it's referred to as a universal, as if everybody could somehow agree on what that universal might be, but even the, in the beginning, it was just, it was a kind of an empty concept.
1: Mm-hmm. Although, if I could make one little note, which perhaps you'll uh, want to either challenge or nuance, mm-hmm. but I mean, one of the fascinating things which we often forget is that the Greek word, so the Greek word polites, uh, citizen, means obviously the member of a particular political community. Um, and we'll be talking a lot more about what that means. Mm-hmm. But but the word cosmos is a very kind of politically freighted term for the world. And it means an ordered, a beautiful ordered whole. Um, so in a sense, which I think feeds into your larger argument in the article, from the very first appearance of the term, there's a very particular conception of the Greek idea of the world, without which, in a sense, this idea of being a citizen of the world. You can't be a citizen of a chaotic space, but you can, in a sense, be a citizen of a naturally ordered whole.
0: Yes, okay, so I think you're right in the sense that the Greeks obviously had some conception of a natural order and a, a kind of a, something that was beyond the polis, right, so a particular political order, um, but uh, I guess once you... Once you move beyond the Greeks, I mean, every culture will have its own conception of what that order will be like, and those different conceptions of what that order is like will naturally uh, not uh, cohere with each other. So, so yes, within within the Greek world or within that context, you could attach the cosmos to some kind of um, conception of order. That people can might or maybe might not agree upon, but uh, in any case, there is that conception. It's just that to to immediately say that is the conception for for the whole world, including other cultures, that's where we start to run into difficulties.
1: And uh, so in a moment, we're going to be talking just a a bit, as you do, in the article about the Enlightenment, which I suppose a lot of people would associate kind of modern cosmopolitanism with the Enlightenment in one way or another. And some might even think of it as an even more recent uh, phenomenon. Uh, But I'm just curious if you could maybe say a few words on. So we started out with Diogenes um, in uh, fourth century uh, Athens. Mm -hmm. And um, if you could say maybe a few words on some of the kind of successors to the Greeks of the cosmopolitan ideal. I personally might think of uh, the the Stoics and even certain Christian traditions.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we 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 could talk about the Stoics in which, I mean, you have, you know, I guess with the Stoics, you also have an attempt to develop a philosophy that, that transcends particular cultures or particular traditions. And I guess you can think about it as that. I mean, I think they, they really focus on, you know, uh, what, what is common to all humans, right? Mm-hmm. They, they talk about, you know, different affects and things like that. And, and based on what's common to all humans and our, our struggles with our own uh, affects, they develop that ph- a philosophy that kind of takes that into account or focuses on that in order to, uh, yeah, to, to in some sense create a universal kind of philosophy. Um, but, of course, it's, you know, it's, it's just as particular, really, um, to them because they, they start out with certain assumptions about, um, well, uh, even that focus on, on the body and kind of your relationship to the body that's a particular decision you make uh, about uh, about humanity and the kind of the basis of humanity. So, I mean, yes, we get a, you get a form of universalism there that you can call cosmopolitan. Uh, but again, you have the same. I mean, you know, from from within the system, it works very well. I suppose it's just um, uh, I think as 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 we move through um, through different cultures and through history, that's when you you, you have some some problems. And um, you know, I guess you could say Christianity is. Uh, you know, it's 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 in a sense one of the first, or I guess you could say the first universal religion. I mean, I guess you, Judaism has this sort of um, sense of a of a single God, but Christianity is really one that that universalizes that idea. Um, I guess you know you could say that they they take up the the um, uh, the the kind of almost turning away from the world that you get from, or certainly with them it's a turning away from the world, but it's, I guess you, can, you could say it's, it's already um, uh, starts with Diogenes a little bit, you know, because he is in a sense turning away from specific traditions is almost like a turn away from the world as well. Um, and, and you know, there, there, was this, there was this kind of myth of Diogenes as the kind of the guy who was always just you know, uh, wandering the streets, right? And you, you know, that's, there's a kind of Christian um, continuation of that you know the hermits and you know beggars and all that right and so um, there's a yeah I guess you could say there's a universalism to that in the sense that it is also a kind of blanket rejection of worldly things um, and so in that sense it could be seen as a kind of yeah a, a, in another sense a blanket rejection of all specific local traditions um, and and th- yeah I suppose that you know, the The way in which Christianity develops, though, is is interesting because, as a blanket rejection of local traditions, it becomes obviously its own um, its own tradition, its own uh, universal tradition. Um, but you know, you get you get Islam that that also claims to be a kind of universal tradition, but it, it, it comes out of that same um, same same current, right? But differentiates itself. So. Uh, or, I guess maybe you can say that with um, with Islam and the contrast between Islam and Christianity, you, you get that first idea of universalism that becomes antagonistic to another form of universalism.
2: With Islam, you get the first universalism that polemically targets a previous universalism. But what about Christianity itself, uh, with its universalism being a challenge to the universalism of Roman citizenship.
0: Oh. Yeah, no, well, uh, I, I think philosophically speaking, really much, you know, the universalism of, of Greek philosophy, really, right? I mean, um, and and uh, I mean, I, I actually, I think I think that the contrast between Christianity and Roman citizenship is really. I, I don't. I'm not sure that the Romans thought of themselves as universal in that. In that
1: kind. Well, of they did not. They did not at the time of the birth of Christianity, because at the time of the birth of Christianity. Uh, citizenship was still almost exclusively restricted to Italians. It, it was in practice, it, it, but Cicero,
2: Cicero was uh, already speculating about universal citizenship, so they speculated about it before it became an institution.
1: Which I think is reflected in the New Testament, actually. When you... Yeah, um, but I, I liked very much, just to get back uh, for a moment to cynicism and Stoicism, I liked very much the fact that you linked kind of cynic practices to some of the uh, kind of ascetic excesses mm-hmm. or or like heroic feats of <laughs> early Christianity. Uh, I, I, I happen to know, because I've done some work on this, that the very first biography of a so-called fool for Christ in the 6th century in Syria was based on the uh, the life of Diogenes, the Cynic. So oh. whoever wrote it... Um, uh, compiled his kind of set of stories about the first fool for Christ, which is still an important concept in, like Dostoevsky. Um, uh, uh, from can you? I don't.
0: Can you tell me about the fool for Christ?
1: Well, yes, he was, he was a very wild character. I think his name, I, but I might be transposing this from uh, Simon Stylates. I believe his name was Simeon. And he wandered into the, uh, the, the Greco-Roman city of Emesa in Syria. But this is in the 6th century? This is in the 6th century. And um, he supposedly wandered into town um, with a dead dog tied by a piece of rope to his belt. And, um, I mean, he defecated in public, I, I, basically all, all, basically, and he ate, you know, garbage, essentially. Um, so basically so st- all... all still
2: eats garbage most of the time, right? In the fast food joints and...
1: Well, anyway. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is pre-fast food <laughs> <laughs> uh, garbage consumption. Um, but, uh, and I'm not sure one can claim that all who consume fast food are fools for Christ. That's a different, that's oh. for a different uh, discussion, perhaps. <laughs> But um, but of course, the one, the one kind of really notorious uh, feat of Diogenes, which is not attributed to this particular saint, is that of, um, you know, pleasuring himself in the agora, right? Because he is, he is celibate. Um, so this is one of the most scandalous things. You didn't know this about Diogenes. That's, um I'm, I'm shocked right here. <laughs> no, no, no. no. He, yeah, he, he made a point of saying that basically, you know, it's important to be able to deal with all of one's needs in a self-sufficient way, so... When you're hungry, you eat, and when you're tired, you sleep, and on and on and on. Um, But I I wanted to just ask really briefly, I mean, I suppose for our listeners, if most of them know of one Stoic, it's probably Marcus Aurelius, and um, one of the curious things about Marcus Aurelius is, um, well, there are a couple of curious things. One, he was a great persecutor of Christians. So this kind of validates the point Eric was raising, that maybe Christianity and a certain kind of Roman universalism were perceived as being very much in conflict. But I find also so fascinating that he, um, I believe he died at the front. He was a great warrior emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And so I'm curious if, if um, since we are kind of, the, the big theme of the day is the clash of cosmopolitanisms, if you have any thought on the ways in which um, relatively early on this idea of kind of natural unity and all of us participating in this one greater order, nevertheless can lend itself to actually pretty, um, straightforwardly imperial projects. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, um, I mean, you know, what's, I mean, just kind of taking the big picture view of, of Christianity in the Roman empire. Um, you know, clearly the Roman empire was, you're right. It was, a you know, certainly by then it was a kind of a universalist project, and it, it that you know that was the whole world, right? Um, and you know, the you know I I, I you know, feel like the the way Christianity develops as an opposition to that um, is as an opposition to the world itself, right? Um, and so that um, you know opposition to everything worldly. Um, then, because it's opposition to everything, we can can have this. I don't know what you call it. Counter uh, counter imperial kind of universalism, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's uh, uh, you know you, you you can't you can't fight against the Roman Empire on its own terms, right? There's obviously no way that Christianity could do that. Um, but by changing the whole you know foundation of what it, what you know what, of the meaning of worldliness, they were able to then, um, yeah, develop this alternative conception of of what would be universal because it's all totally, you know, opposed to anything in the world. Um, so I guess I guess you're I guess um, you're right, Eric, in the sense that, you know, Christianity is opposing itself to a kind of uh, alternative um, form of universalism, a kind of worldly universalism. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard to, it, it's hard to see it. But, but the difference between Christianity and Islam in, the, in doing that is that Christianity really didn't see itself as somehow,
2: uh, you know,
0: antagonistic. I mean, it was, you know, it was clearly they... They, they,
2: they didn't see themselves as antagonistic? To, well... Th- against th- the Romans?
0: Well, th- they, they, they weren't attacking the Romans, right? So the Romans were attacking them, Right, yeah. but their their response was to you know to give up. I mean, you know, the, you know, you have all these stories these early Christians that would just you know run out and unarmed attack these Roman soldiers in order to be killed because that was their the quickest way to you know to salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a, it wasn't until you know it really wasn't until much later I think that, that Christianity Christians developed even you know an army or something like that, right? It was really probably happened much more in the you know in the uh, in the uh, in,
2: in Northern Europe,
0: really probably first. But they know, were fighting with, the with way. The you, but but
2: they were fighting the way you just said. They were outflanking the Roman right. Empire by building an empire of a different kind, ideologically. And, and, yes, yes, and they, right. they were fighting a. Uh, they had a spiritual universalism, that opposed the, the earthly legal universalism of the Romans, and that supplanted the, the Greek universalism of the of the logos, because right. the yes. the Greeks are very logos oriented, right, yes. and then the. The the Christians is of course beautiful that the uh, the Greek the Greek version of the uh, but I'm you know I'm I'm going into David's uh, David Dusenbury's territory here but it's of course so beautiful that the the uh, the New Testament opens with in the beginning there was the word was the logos so they 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 try to uh to they they, they absorb it so to speak uh, but they transform it very very fundamentally where they where now the universal is not this abstract logos of this, which, which humans can connect to via the reason, but now it's, 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 it comes down to earth and it's in the flesh. And because the, the, the story of Jesus uh, is, of course, world, world history concentrating in a person. And then, and then via that story, uh, uh, eschatologically sketching out uh, will world, world history human history and laying out laying out the entire laying out the entire narrative so to speak so there's there's this very beautiful beautiful transformations there in in rivalry with Roman and in, in, in a subtle implicit polemic against Roman legal merely earthly universalism and in creative intellectually creative correspondence with the uh, with the uh, with the Greek, Universalism of the locals, but I'm really, I'm really getting out of sight of my territory here because David, no, David, David Duesenbury writes, you know, thick books about Christian 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 history.
0: You you characterize it. No, it's 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 clear that there's, this, I guess you're right, kind of two fronts that they're fighting. Yes, <laughs> um, against the Romans, but also against the Greeks. But it is a it is a a, a conceptual transformation that they they undertake, and it's not so much a, a you know like a, a physical one, right?
1: So, would it be, I mean, there's much more to be said along these lines, but would it be correct to say that in some of the figures you discuss in the article, two I'm really thinking of are the German philosopher Immanuel Kant and then the great German men of letters and many other things, sciences, uh, you know, morphology of plants and theory of colors and on and on and on, Goethe. Um, would it be fair to say? that at least in your mind, that with some of these figures in the 18th century, it's the first time since antiquity, the, the antiquity we've been discussing, that the cosmopolitan project becomes a bit separated from Christianity and a bit separated from religion. And the question of kind of world culture begins to take on what we might call, for lack of a better word, a secular caste. Does that...
0: Well, I mean, I guess you could say that there's... You know, Erasmus and kind of the Renaissance—you can you know, kind of this this humanist ideal already kind of s- sets up the the terms for that. Uh, but certainly, you know, yeah, Kant and Goethe were were central for I think our modern conception of what cosmopolitanism is. Right? I mean, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, Kant especially, I think, really um, has kind of laid out the framework and the terms for. Um, 20th, 21st century discussions, you know, his, his, his own, you know, the Perpetual Peace essay, for instance, uh, where he kind of lays out this framework for a kind of world order, I suppose.
1: And could you just say just a few things? Because I think Goethe, with his idea of world literature, if I'm not mistaken, kind of leads to the last part of your essay on translation and kind of, but if you could just say a couple of words about why Kant is so important and why his uh, essay on Perpetual Peace has influenced
0: Well, um, so he lays out this idea of a kind of world. He's imagining republics, um, and you know he begins with this Enlightenment idea of how humanity is or can progress, in a sense, away from um, you know what he calls a kind of self-imposed. Uh, immaturity right Uh, he's got this what is uh, enlightenment essay and um, in which we can we no longer have to be you know obeying traditions obeying rulers again this is I guess this is a a common theme in most cosmopolitanisms you know sort of this rejection of kind of local traditions and um, uh, traditional authorities but he develops it in a way that he says, yes, we have this ability to reason for ourselves, and through that ability, we're able to develop political structures that match a kind of, um, you know, uh, well, rationally organized state uh, in which um, uh, discussion and debate um, is able to establish the structures for for society and politics and based on that he imagines a kind of world of such you know a, a kind of progress where you get a world of such um states and then he doesn't he doesn't say that we would have a world state um he he's really careful i think about that in the sense that he um he does still locate freedom within each state so each state has its own structures for developing political order, and its own, I guess you would have to say, in our terms, public sphere, a kind of space of debate and discussion, upon which their own state will be based. And then you can have these different states relating to each other, um, and having treaties and such, and that would be the basis of this you know, perpetual peace. I mean, he, it's it's strange. You know, he, he um, uh, when he invokes this 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 term perpetual peace, you know, he um, um, he he actually um, does it half ironically because you know it's a, he, he takes it from a sign um, uh, uh, that's that's a that's a sign for a mortuary, right? So that's it's, it's, you know, toward perpetual peace. It's supposed to be well, only in death do you have perpetual peace. But um, but he does you know he does lay out this conception. Um, that combines a kind of cosmopolitan world in which everybody is kind of in their intellectual and political life is kind of converging toward, uh, uh, I guess, a kind of Republican system uh, you know, and, and based on discourse. But at the same time, each state has its own instantiation of that. And that's, um, uh, I guess... So today, so you asked about how that has been so influential. I mean, I think it's been influential first because it does set up today's general, I don't know, supposedly, I guess, liberal democratic consensus that the world could be or should be moving toward liberal democracy. But um, on the other hand, it is, I mean, he does reject the idea of a world state which is not always the case with sort of today's cosmopolitans, right, where there is some imagination of a kind of, oh, I don't know, the International Court or United Nations or something like establishing us through, through international treaty law, something uh, akin to, it's not exactly a world state, but, uh, but in which, you know, the, the basis of, uh, I guess, sovereignty would be on that higher level. Um, and, and I think... You know, what I think is value, I mean, so, so this kind of seems to come from Kant, but I think Kant actually reject, I mean, he does reject it in, in perpetual peace. Um, and I think it's because he really locates freedom on the level of that individual state. The individual state has a kind of um, responsibility. And that's the, that's kind of the locus of responsibility. It's not so much... So on the one hand, it's with the individual, I suppose you could say, because the individual is supposed to be thinking for her or himself. But that individual is going to exist within this discursive context um, that's established by the state. And if you go beyond the state, then all of a sudden you kind of lose, you know, you, you, you lose freedom in a sense because you lose responsibility. You lose the sense in which you have a kind of addressee for any kind of problem, so in, in in the last analysis, you have the state that becomes the locus of freedom and responsibility in Kant, because it is responsible, and has to sort of make decisions with that responsibility in mind. If you go beyond the state, then you lose that um, that kind of locus locus of responsibility. So, you know, I think in one sense, today's world is in, is um, uh, is kind of modeled on, on this Kantian model because we do have the United Nations. We, I mean, since World War II, we, we do have this, you know, what people call uh, this sort, sort of international order, right, um, in, in which you have, you know, each, you know, I guess you'd have to say they're all nation states today or, 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 or sort of that's kind of the model, even, even, even if, if, if some of them aren't really functioning nation states, but that's the model in which each, Nation-state really has that kind of responsibility, uh, but each one is considered to be, in a sense, free, right? And so it's, uh, you know, I, I suppose you could, you could, um, you could say that his his conception kind of, uh, kind of established itself, even though there's now obviously lots of debates about it. Uh, you know, it's 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 still, um, you know, I think it's it's. Uh, there's there's nothing there's nothing better in sight, I suppose, right? So,
1: so both the good news and the bad news is this is what perpetual peace looks like. Yeah. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> um, I would like I, I would like to just read one quote out uh, from your article. It seems to me to really capture your your basic problem, and it, it's a nice link between the kind of Western tradition of cosmopolitanism and then. Uh, the the Chinese conception of Tianxia, which we're going to be discussing for the next few minutes. So we've been discussing um, Western cosmopolitanism as what you call a specific uh, cultural construct, um, and um, as reflecting a, a particular tradition, a particular European tradition, with ultimately roots in cynicism and Christianity, Stoicism. And uh, you note that cosmopolitanism, in as much as it is a cultural construct, is not so different than nationalism. And then it seems to me that really the the most remarkable insight of the whole article emerges, and you claim that different cosmopolitanisms might in in fact collide, uh, which I think I can hand off to Eric to begin to explore what some of the eastern conceptions might be, which are colliding. In our day with uh western cosmopolitanism
2: yeah so about about that topic um it you argue that the language of languages of cosmopolitanism have uh their lo- local positioning uh when you sp- when you imagine uh, a cosmopolitan unity you're coming from a different particular cultural background you're, expre- you're using particular words uh, and therefore, your uh, therefore cosmopolitanisms are always uh, in the plural and and localised particularistic at the same time. So maybe you could maybe you could very briefly first first reflect on that central problematic. What you call you call it actually the problematic universality of cosmopolitanism, and you talk about the fragmentation of the universal. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, So, you know, essentially we have been been talking about that the whole time in a sense because we've talked about how different forms of cosmopolitanism have um, developed within the Western tradition itself uh, and that they sometimes conflict with each other, right? So, I mean, you you know, I I just mentioned, you know, about Islam and that Islam and Christianity is a clear case where, you know, both claim to be universal but you know there's, there's there's been this intractable conflict really between the two of them. I mean, in fact, Islam really, I think in, in some sense, developed really as a direct kind of uh, rival, you know to and I think saw itself as such a, to, to Christianity. Um, but you know but I mean th- I think there's a, a kind of basic uh, I guess, conceptual problem with any cosmopolitanism in the sense that it's always going to be, Arising out of a particular tradition. I mean, we, you know, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think one of the uh, fundamental truths about humanity is that we develop out of a tradition. And um, and we can't not be part of a tradition. Yeah. Uh, we, just the fact of having a language, and I think this is something yes. I talk about in the essay, is just the fact that we're in a language and we have to exist and we can't exist yeah. outside of a language, you know, forces us into certain pathways. And that's, you know, any universalism, any conception of a universal, any concep- conception of a cosmopolitan is going to be a kind of projection out of the particular, um, you know, Decisions or, or or properties of the language in which you exist, and and language, you know, in the in first place, broad sense. you know, in, in lots of senses, yeah. in just the word sense in the first place, you know, the words you have, the grammar you have, but then also the the, the higher the history of that language and literature and the in the philosophy, the history of that language and the
2: semantic fields, and the history of those semantic fields, and the the hidden assumptions in those in those semantic fields. So when you when you're uh, it this is this is really the the the, uh, the thrownness into the world as later existentialist philosophers would put it. You're, you're, you 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 don't start uh, we don't start as human beings. We don't start at the top of a mountain looking down upon the plurality of of human expressions. But we found our we find ourselves in a particular location. We in we're in a world with a particular horizon. Uh, and that's also how we approach the
1: term—a term coined by Heidegger, Geworfenheit, Geworfenheit which yes. is—it's uh, it, fitting as today's Heidegger's birthday. We could perhaps. Oh yeah, say. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the day on which he was thrown. <laughs>
2: that's right. Oh okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. Um, so so let's turn to the Chinese. So the Chinese have uh, have their own traditions of universalizing thought. Now there, there happens to be a, a French professor Julien who wrote a book. Uh, uh, Julien, uh, Professor Julien from. Uh, he wrote, he's a he's a comparative uh, philosopher who's also a synolo- he's also a sinologist, and he wrote a book on universalism, in which he on universal on the universal. Sorry, and he argued that actually the Chinese a tradition of universalism isn't a true universalism. And then he has a really complex argument on why that is the case. Uh, but it is we, we don't have to go into that, I'm not sure, and I'm also not sure if I'm persuaded by it, but there is uh, there's definitely a we, there's a, a Western school, there's a Western tradition of universalisms that are interacting with each other. We mentioned the 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 Greek, the Greek tradition, the Christian tradition, the Roman tradition, and the Enlightenment tradition. Now, you also seem to have something like that on the Chinese side, right? You have Buddhist universalism, you have Taoist uh, universalism, but then on the Chinese side, it seems that at some this, the empire is so powerful and the bureaucracy is so powerful and the, and the conf, official Confucianism that, that is installed in that, in that uh, imperial bureaucracy that in the end, the, the notion of Qian Sha seems to seems to dominate it becomes the dominant universalism how, how would you look up, upon it because you've, you've published on Qianxia at a variety of moments and uh, as a telos editor you have uh, you've uh, recently uh, 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 edited an issue in which multiple authors including myself wrote about uh, the chensha tradition in china
1: and for our listeners could we translate that term yes oh. yeah yes. let's do that yeah, so, yeah. T- it's
0: composed of two words, tian, which is, is heaven, and, and xiao is earth. So it's uh, heaven and earth. So it's, it's everything, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it's, a ter- it's, it's an ancient term uh, that really describes um, what for the Chinese was everything, which was you know, the, the Chinese empire, the Chinese space uh, of the world. Um, and so the, there was this conception that really develops early on um you know certainly i guess by the time of the the first emperor um but even probably before that in in which you have this idea that everything that's going on within the kind of chinese political sphere even if there's conflicts between different parties within that sphere that's civilization that's the world and the farther you get away from that the farther you're you're kind of moving away from kind of the center of the world and um and you know, there's a, there's a kind of sense in which, to the extent that that world expands, that world is, is growing. Um, and, you know, things on the edges of it, you know, hardly even count as part of the world anymore, right? So, so, um, so it is clearly a political conception, um, but it also has this kind of philosophical sense of um, the, you know, the Chinese, you know, eventually the Chinese empire um, Really, being something that unites both heaven and earth too, because you know obviously the the, the, the emperor is supposed to be the the son of heaven, right? Yeah. And so you know, kind of the representative of heaven on earth, and so therefore you know everything that's going on with that within that Chinese space really then uh, counts as part of the universal, and you know th- they they just didn't really have as much of a sense or an, even an interest in th- things that that went on outside of that sphere
2: yeah and well the and if if the barbarians at uh, the edge of the world would get too close to towards the center the uh the Qianca would be thrown into chaos so you had yeah the the chensha could also be more or less in order and a fully well-ordered chensha would then also be harmonious and and the uh, the emperor would be uh, honoring his uh, ancestors in an exemplary way and the family structures uh and ties would be maintained in an exemplary way throughout uh, throughout at least uh, the heartlands, the Zhonghua of the uh, uh, and and then later Zhongguo, the, the the what we today is the word for China, central central kingdom. Actually, that's a little bit of a later term. So as I understand it, you first had uh, Zhonghua, so the, the central culture, mm-hmm. um, and that had to be particularly well ordered. Now where was I going with this? Wait, I had something. Uh, Oh yes, how is this? How is this Tianxia realm held together? So it seems to be not as with the Greeks or with the Christians or with the Romans, uh, who focus on respectively with the Romans law, with the Christians uh, connection to to God uh, via the Church, and with the uh, with the Greeks the rational mind that. Uh, by abstracting away from concrete situations and, and per- personal desires and tastes, reaches out to this universal logos. Uh, it's it is instead it seems to be the a, an, a a universality of ritual. How would you how would you respond to that? So it's held together. It's a universality that's held together very differently because now it's not it's not the universality of reason. It's not the universality of faith. It's not the universality of law. It is the universality of Of ritual.
0: I guess that's a good way to characterize it. I mean, certainly um, the structures of the state were very ritualized, and they had a kind of well. I mean, and the well, ritual and I guess bureaucracy. I suppose, right? And maybe maybe they kind of merge into each other uh, in a sense uh, because of Confucianism and and how um, those bureaucratic structures had well, you know. I guess there's there's arguments about how how much they were they were they were legalist or how much they were they were they confucian um but certainly I think I you're right that there was this, this sort of merging of the of the ritual and and the bureaucracy that kind of maintained um the connection between every local official and ultimately the 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 emperor right so there's this this whole hierarchy and there's it's it's yes you're right very um Ritualized, but also, yeah, I think you, you can't can, uh, bureaucratic, right? There's a there's a there's a there's a sense in which that local level always has ultimately that connection up to the top and, and it's, or the center, I suppose you could say, right? And that's you know that's the the that's the basic conception, and it even goes to you know so that the farther you get from the center, the, the kind of more attenuated that that center is, I suppose
1: just a quick question um you draw a really interesting parallel in the text which i'm wondering if you could comment on between the way latin functioned in europe for many centuries and the way chinese functioned both within the empire and in broader east asia i was wondering if you could tell our listeners just a bit about how the the language and the sign Mm -hmm. system in addition to ritual, of course bound up with ritual kind of created a region
0: right well um well so you know latin you know Functioned as his lingua franca for in Europe for a long time, um, you know certainly all through the Middle Ages, and um, and what's interesting about Chinese is that it has this sign system in which you can write any language using those symbols because they're, you know they're uh, they, they don't each symbol doesn't represent a sound it represents uh, a concept a, a, you know an idea, so. Um, I mean, even to the present day, you can use those Chinese symbols, and it's it's something that unifies everybody because even though they might have a totally different language, they can still use it. I mean, in fact, you know, Japanese still uses a lot of those symbols as well. Um, and and even if you don't know Japanese, if you if you look at the symbols that they're using, and you know Chinese, you can you can kind of piece together sort of what what what's going on, right? I mean, it's it. it uh, clearly evolved and they have uh, another system as well but anyway the, the basic idea is um, that you know what people see as one of the big drawbacks of the Chinese language which is to say they have these um, these characters that in which they have no alphabet and you have to learn every character it's a, it's a whole new thing for every word you know it's it's, it's incredibly arduous to learn but the big, you know, plus of this is that it, it does establish this kind of universal written language um, that anybody could use, right? So, I mean, you know, you could, you could write English using Chinese characters if you wanted to. Um, and, you know, but, I mean, the, the other, I think the other consequence of, of the Chinese route to written language is that the written language when you learn the, the written language, you're also learning this whole tradition too. So there's this um, there's this I don't know what you call it. I guess it's well it it's it's a universalism. Uh, there's a tradition of universalism that you're um, edging educating yourself into as you re- learn the written language, right? So that there's a, an incredible unifying aspect of that written language. Um, That brings in all of these local cultures in that in that space. That you know, obviously, it you know for for whatever for thousands of years, but still even today includes all sorts of different local cultures. But um, they all are in a sense unified through the written language, Um, and and not just on a kind of abstract level. You know, it could you know, in a very concrete way, in the sense that you know the, the characters they make up their own separate literary tradition. Right? literary, intellectual, historical tradition um, in which the characters... You know, one, th- one of the most difficult things about learning Chinese... You know, I learned it as an adult, right?
2: Oh, you learned it as an adult. I did. Well, I, mean, I had I, always assumed that you, well, uh, you learned it as a native language from, a, your, from your
0: parents. It's a combination. So, I mean, I grew up in the United States. Um, so, in the beginning, I, d- I did speak Chinese. Um, but as I grew older, I spoke less and less Chinese. Uh, and I never learned uh, how to read and write. Until I was an adult, oh. right? So, um, so I went through the same process as any Westerner having to learn how to read and write. It's just incredibly it's like pain, arduous, yeah. painful process. But that painful process is the process of a kind of acculturation yes. Yes. into this whole tradition um, that is, in some sense, a, a kind of a universal tradition. It Certainly, sees itself as that as, as a universal tradition, and. Um, and it has a kind of legitimate claim to that, precisely because of the way it um, it can include any language, right? Because it's it's not tied to any particular sound system. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's something about you know I think there's a, a, something about that linguistic choice that they made. Of 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 not having alphabet. I don't know if you could call it a choice, but it was just it was it was it was the way that tr- linguistic tradition developed that had these incredible consequences for you know their way of conceiving, yeah, I guess the relationship between the, the spoken and the written word, really, right, and 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 thus that relationship to kind of universality.
2: Now, of course, there was a uh, a period of rupture in Chinese history when the uh, Qing dynasty started falling apart. And you had the Republican era and the early communists coming in, and that's also when language ruptured to an extent because the Chinese characters were simplified on the mainland, which uh, comparative uh, philosopher and sinologist Thomas Metzger, who used to work for the Hoover Institute, and he's now, I think, almost 100 years old, or at least in his 90s, uh, he's very old now, and he, uh, he, he, he called it a barbaric act. The uh, simplification of the characters, because of course that's—I mean, not—I mean, most characters are still in roughly the same form, uh, but the simplification of the characters, which I think Mao undertook in the, do you know, it's the 50s or the 60s, but it's—it's—it's—it's uh, a—it's a rupture on the linguistic level, but also on the conceptual level, uh, which you write about. There was a major rupture in that the Chen Sha tradition. Even though you know Mao and, and Sun Yat-sen, Sun Zhongshan, they used to still use the term Datong to describe communism. So there's some there's some uh, there's some you know uh, traditional concepts they use even as they are adopting communism and socialism and liberalism in the in the early 20th century. Uh, but there is a rupture as in that many intellectuals stop using the at some point the Chen Sha notion and they switch to a Westernized notion of cosmopolitanism, uh, Shu uh, Zhui. Jui. A worldism and and maybe you could work us through that, and then also mention that there 's actually in a a, a a return at least within academic philosophy in China towards a a revived Chen uh, Shaism which had gone out of fashion due to its association with imperial china
0: mm. um, so I mean I think the big rupture is clearly the Encounter with, with the West in in a way that um, impressed upon the Chinese their technological and military inferiority. I mean that was the big you know you know during the the nineteenth century, obviously the opium wars and uh, the opium wars and all that that whole period in which they were faced with um, not just realizing that there was a world outside of them, but that that they were um, yeah somehow. Inferior to that that world and that they somehow needed to catch up or or um, change themselves So that they could compete on an equal on an equal footing and that's really I think you know, this this is you know this is a Traumatic experience for this culture that really saw itself as the world itself right at the center of the world um, and you know, that's when you know, there's really any... Well, you know, by the end of the, the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, there is this incredible... You know, a kind of a reversal in which they really see themselves as having to learn about the West. And that's continued to the present day. I mean, they're so really...
2: Well, has it? Because there's, there seems to be another turn well, in defense uh, well, more recently.
0: We, we we can talk about that. But, I mean, even within... You know, even up to the present day, people in China... They know much more about Western culture than anybody in the West knows about China. Oh yeah, right. I mean, there's yes. no no comparison really. I mean, they're translating everything, they're reading everything. I mean, you know, you know, the, the Communist Party itself, they're based on
2: yeah. on Marx, right? So can, they, can I just say that David Moser wrote a lovely little essay about that, about how America is this noise machine which sends out messages, and how China is one, that is more on the receiving side. Yes, right. And uh,
0: yes, um, the linguists. they were very uh, clever Mos- about receiving things. But I mean, in the beginning, though, you know, in, in you know, in the nineteenth century um it was traumatic but they were I mean they were receiving they were they were trying I mean a lot of it came through Japan right um, going to Japan to learn about the West right uh, but then obviously you know going, going to the west and, try, and, and receiving all this stuff and so um because of that you know you had this development of this other term now right so they had they have you know so Tiansha is, it's such a kind of traditional term right heaven and earth it's like yeah. a very kind of almost ritualistic yeah. right and Imperial. Yes, imperial, like from the, you know, from the Chinese point of view. Um, and then when they, you know, as they kind of are forced to look at the rest of the world and looking at the rest of the world not as, as you know, from the imperial center, but really from the, you know, really seeing themselves almost at the periphery, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they, do, you know, they, they've they always had the, uh, uh, a word for world, 世界, uh and then they, you know, it turns into worldism, shijia where... They really. Oh, they,
2: they had that, actually had that term, Shijie, uh, already. Yes. I thought that that was actually a uh, neologism at the in the in the late nineteenth century. Oh, isn't that? Isn't that? Uh, didn't oh, they? Didn't they I only don't. have the term chencha? Yeah, well, I w- would have to look it up. But I,
0: wait, I would have to. Look, I'm sorry. I, I, oh yeah. I, I, was, I, might, I don't. I'm not sure about that. So I mean, certainly.
2: Um, oh yeah. No, Shijie, it, it must. It must have Buddhist... Maybe it has Buddhist connotations. Yeah. I mean, I. I.
0: I it's. We would have to look at yeah, up. yeah, yeah. Yes. But I, I, it, I believe that Shiji was. I mean, it was it was already
2: a word. Oh yeah, it was a word, but not uh, Shiji Jui. But was not Let, Let's put
1: a little note on the web page. Uh, <laughs> d- deciding <laughs> we the question. Just,
0: yeah, yeah, right. um, um, but Jui, so worldism as a kind as a as a word for cosmopolitanism that was certainly new. Yes, um, and and it was a word in which you know. China itself, then, you know, just becomes one piece of of a larger world, right, rather than
2: the center of the the world. The center of the world. Well, Liang Qichao uh, says that China discovered itself as a state among states because previously it didn't consider itself a state because if you're the center, uh, it's not just that you don't see yourself as a state because you see yourself as the center of the world, but it's also you don't see other states really as states because you don't see them as legitimate autonomous entities. You see them as having legitimacy insofar as they are linked up symbolically, ritualistically with the center. Yes. So so, so when China discovers itself as a state, it also discovers the existence of other states, so yes. to speak. Previously, it didn't live in a world of states and then suddenly it lived in a world of states, which is interesting because now, as you mentioned, there is a continuity with the present. China still sees itself as a state among states, but there's now a new, new, new trend of reimagining the Chinese state as a Guo, as a as a world country, which is also something not a truly traditional notion because you couldn't think of China as a Guo, as a as a world country. But uh, this is a term that uh, Xu Lin uses, and Zhao Tingyang has some has some version of that. Um so uh so maybe you could you could say a little bit about these contemporary Chencha theorists yeah. that have emerged on the scene.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean I think I think you could we might translate that uh, as civilizational state. You know that's what people say now, right? About a, a kind of state that claims to be more than just another nation state, right? Uh, you know, I, you know Russia clearly is trying to develop that notion as well. Um, and um as China develops it I think they're doing the same thing in in the or similar thing, in that um, they actually do want to, I guess, return China to that kind of preeminent ro- ro- preeminent role in the world. Um, but that really does, I think, involve to extent to a certain extent, um, undermining this um, well what I call the kind of Kantian conception of. Uh, sovereign individual states existing within a world of sovereign individual states. Well, they, uh, but
2: they would deny that. They would say that they they appreciate the diversity of all nations uh, and and cultures and civilizations and that they don't want to put China, so I'm talking now about people such as Zhao Tingyang, Xu Jilin, but also Xi Jinping himself with his uh, Global Civilization Initiative, which he launched earlier this year, the notion is that all the, the sovereignty the Westphalian sovereignty will be in the, of the world order will be and diversity of the world order will be preserved. It's just that uh, China will unleash its traditional wisdom on the world and share this wisdom with the entire world, so that all the different c- countries and cultures and civilizations can live in harmony and peace.
0: Yes, right. So um, I think that you're right about the rhetoric, but I mean, just what you said about the, the shift in, in going back to the Tin Sha term already undermines that to a certain extent. I mean, philosophically speaking, but I think You're practic- so critical.
2: I'm a very gullible reader.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but practically speaking, I mean, you know, as the Chinese uh, Communist Party has um, expanded its reach within kind of world institutions, it really has taken this strategy of trying to, I think... Um, in a sense, use its influence to undermine the the kind of the, the neutrality of those world institutions. Now it can say
2: and the, no- the neutrality of the world institutions. Yes. Ha- it in can
0: say it can say that it's doing precisely what the United States has done since World War II, right? I mean, certainly.
2: Yeah, I was already going to say, like, which neutral world institutions? I thought that uh, I thought we had well, a, the United Nations. I thought Nations. we had a Western centric world order and these kind of things. Oh, the United Nations. Yes, yes. Right. right. Okay. So I
0: mean. Uh, uh, i mean I think what's what's key here is you know so i you know there's there's a, uh, a what uh, a common critique of the United States is that it controls the world order right and it's, mm. and it's established the world order for its own purposes um i i don't I don't think that's fair. I think that the United States has been the certainly the primary defender of this uh of this international what people call the sort of the the rules based international order mm. Um, But the rules really do, and the United States has pretty much tried to defend the sovereignty of individual nation states. Oh, sure, sure. And so um, to the extent that the United States has been overseeing this world order, um, it has had a stabilizing effect on, on that order, whereas you know, it's not clear how stabilizing in effect China is having or will have, Mm -hmm. um, and to the extent to which it does want to um, you know, uh, see itself as trying to defend this individual sovereignty of states, and um, I mean, you know, this, this gets into pretty difficult political questions, but you know the sense in which you know, well, we can have a dispute about about Taiwan, but certainly you can see Taiwan as a sovereign state, even though China rejects that idea, uh, but it's been functioning that way. And clearly it's not happy with you know with that situation. But I mean, it, it clearly also wants to expand its sphere of influence to other neighboring countries in you know in, in Southeast Asia um, in a way that, you know, frankly, the United States has not really done, you know in any kind of a uh, whatever uh, uh, aggressive way in in its own backyard i mean certainly it it wants to see you know it would like cuba to be have, have a different yeah, i was already government, thinking cuba actually. have have a different <laughs> government but cuba has <laughs> been sitting there for you know half a century you know and you know it's still sitting there right and there's there's been no there's there's you know nobody nobody's ever talking about the united states trying to invade cuba right not since the bay of pig yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> right? yeah yeah was right but i mean you know so uh, you know, right now, Cuba can be safe in, in believing, oh, well, is, there's no, there not going to be any American Marines coming to Cuba very soon, right? Whereas with Taiwan, it's a totally different situation. Um, and so, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, the, the way it's been um, trying to infiltrate different international organizations and um, trying to sort of um, use its power and influence to force other nations to, to go in a particular direction, I think it is something that's really threatening the, the, the existing kind of order. I mean, I don't... Uh, anyway, we, well, I don't, I'd like to hear I'm your a, response to that.
1: Well, I'm afraid we're really basically out of time. I, I would like to hear Eric's response <laughs> to that as well, but we've been going for uh, more than 50 minutes now, which is kind of our, our limit. I wanted to ask you one final question. So moving back from politics to kind of theory a little bit. So... Uh, well, I really
2: dodged that question really nicely. Because you you put me on the spot there, so I'm I'm glad that the David <laughs> takes it in a different direction.
1: Well, Martin Heidegger's birthday has been mentioned, and today was also the day on which uh, September 26th, uh, Walter Benjamin, whom you discuss a lot in the article, uh, took his own life. Which is worth remembering, and I just want to ask you: in a period in which it is precisely cosmopolitanisms which seem to be clashing, according to your argument here, is there what? What do you see the role of the uh, uh, the intellectual as a kind of translator? Do you see there being a role for the intellectual as a kind of translator, or? Like uh, the lamented Walter Benjamin, is suicide really the best uh, the best option for uh, for, for, for theorists <laughs> and, <laughs> and poets and philosophers?
0: Um, that's a difficult question. Um, well, I think I, I do think that intellectuals do have that role as being mediators, translators, so to speak. Because um, in the first place, I mean, those are the people that do learn about a different culture um, and therefore are able to kind of provide a kind of bridge. Um, and I think you know that you know the, the, the kind of work that I guess that you, you all are doing, that Telos does, uh, is partly trying to create that kind of bridge, right? I mean, we, we really try and publish things from all over the world. Uh, in order to get these different perspectives into an English language journal Um, so that, you know, even if there are these, in some sense, crazy perspectival differences that prevent people from kind of really being able to kind of get into somebody else's skin at least you can you can have that problem addressed and and you can have somebody else speaking from you know we, we you know we publish you know intellectuals from China, from from Russia, uh, so that we get a kind of view from their viewpoint and and see, oh, okay, this is how they're seeing what we're seeing uh, and it looks different from 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 what, where, from where they're standing. And it, at least that we can you know I mean I think that's I think a really important role for intellectuals um, to uh, in kind of trying to mediate between these different cultures. Um, it's not easy uh, because you, you're obviously kind of stuck within your own in a sense. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to be, I think it's really hard to, to actually be able to even exist in two cultures, to have, you know, to have that kind of bilingualism, a cultural, uh, whatever, biculturalism, uh, in which you're really able to step back and forth. It's it's very rare to be able to do that because you know you're only one person, and um, you know I, even if you're bilingual, I guess you're, you're you could you, people say you're code switching, you're going back and forth. Um, but if you're only doing that, then you're never mediating, right? You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're it's like if there's two two people in one body uh, to to create that mediation, it would really it would really require a, the development of, of, a, of a third culture in a sense that that kind of mediates um but i mean i think that happens right that does happen um uh, but it uh you know it's uh it's a pretty fraught process
1: well i think we will we'll leave it there but thank you so much for joining us today
0: well thank you very much it was a pleasure